news. No. <laughs> hey, happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 303, um, August 30th, 2023. And uh, my name is Jason Neifer, and I'm stunned into a, a, a stupor of silence, apparently, but... I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in cold and rainy Missoula, Montana. So who knows? I imagine that my colleague and friend, Dr. Wes Fryer, uh, joining us from North Carolina tonight, um, I imagine you're getting some rain. Indeed, we are. Just a few light, um, light, uh, remnants of the hurricane. We're not getting anything too severe, but yes, I'm Wes Fryer. I'm a middle school STEM teacher here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Providence Day School, and very excited to be looking forward to a Labor Day weekend break coming up, and uh, we have open house. We haven't had an open house for parents in person for four years at our school, but we've oh, got wow. it tomorrow night. So um, anyway, it's... Uh, you know, COVID is not gone, but we are, those that have experienced it have experienced, as far as I know, quite, quite mild and, and light cases. And, uh, you know, school is, is on pretty much normal, aside from, you know, culture wars and all kinds of other things and AI and all, <laughs> all kinds of other things going on. But in terms of, you know, schedules and classes and being able to be face-to-face -face and all of that good stuff. So I thought it might be appropriate. I didn't have, I don't have a hurricane background, but I've got my, my Edisto beach uh, background uh, thinking about those that have been in the path of, of the storm this, uh, this past, what, 24 hours. So what are we up uh, though? So, but are you guys, so if it's rainy, does this mean the fire season's over? Cause usually don't you wait for rains for fires to get put out? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because just before I hopped on tonight, I did notice that uh, some counties north of Missoula County um, were were uh, canceling their 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 uh, their fire warnings and because of, of the rain available in the region and the rain we picked up from the Pacific Coast uh, hurricane um, a couple weeks back actually really put out a lot of fires in Montana. It's not quite all the way out yet, and of course we get a lot of smoke from. Canada and Washington and Oregon and Idaho when there's fires there. But yeah, we're definitely headed in the right direction here. And I will knock on some wood right now that maybe we avoided it this summer. Uh, we have a we have fire situation more summers than not anymore, but it would be pretty great if we managed to uh, avoid that completely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I'm excited to say for the first time in maybe months, we are actually caught up on our website. So at the end of every show, we'll say, hey, you can go to edtechsr.com, download audio and video versions and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and honestly, Jason, part of it is thanks to you sharing Claude.ai because it is phenomenal. I'm now able to just copy my prompts. And I mean, it saves me, it saves me at least 30 minutes a week. Um, sometimes I would like start listening to the show and I would, you know, be processing it and, and summarizing it and links and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And then before the show, I was, uh, ooing and awing because Jason's geek of the week, maybe two weeks ago <clears throat> was about upscaling graphics. And one of the things that I've noticed, I like to use 
uh, Google slideshow slides that I download as either PNGs or JPEGs um, as thumbnails on videos. Well, if you end up, uh, you know, seeing those in a large format, it's actually not that many pixels. And so today I made a little tutorial video for my students and then upscaled it four times using this free AI tool. And it's just phenomenal. So if you don't do anything else, folks, you want to check out the Geeks of the Week because they just might change your life. And, you know, we, when we talk about geeks, we have that in spades here <laughs> at the uh, EdTech Situation Room. So, uh, well, Wes, um, uh, you know, we're here to talk links. Uh, and by the way, if you'd like to check out these links, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links. Check out our Google Doc, where we always have way more links than we have time to talk about them. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Wes and I could do a daily uh, EdTech news show uh, maybe in retirement, that will be our fate, is to uh, sit around as old geezers and, and talk about the ed tech and the good old days with our Windows 95 boxes. But The old um, days. The old days. Um, but this week, we, of course, have AI news. And I've started kind of categorizing stuff a little differently um, that when it's, it's, it's about Google and AI, that... Um, that should go under Google. Um, and when it's about Microsoft and AI, that should go under Microsoft because I think that um, context matters a lot now. And also, I'm, and, and I, I have something to share maybe in a week or two. I'm putting together, uh, uh, admittedly, a rudimentary, but a framework um, for starting to discuss AI in a more nuanced way when you're in education because I think one of the problems we run into with how extraordinary these tools are is that it, it becomes such a, a, an almost uh, a parlor trick that, that uh, you know, can really dazzle the eye. And then you start to lose that there are really a lot of ways to approach this. And probably education is going to have to have a multi, multifaceted approach. The way we might integrate AI in um, our, our teaching and learning to help students grasp these tools is a very different conversation than how we're using it as knowledge workers and professionals in the education industry to help our productivity. They're related, but I think that they may end up being different discussions and you shouldn't let the complexities of one impact, you know, the way you might use it for another. And so um, I started talking today with a, a colleague of mine at work um, and just kind of think about what that might look like and how we're, we're, we're going to uh, do that um, in coming uh, days, weeks, and months. So we have some AI news. We have Google news. I have a fascinating AI tool I want to share today that I discovered yesterday that, uh, and, and I say this a lot, but this one, it's really true, absolutely blew my mind. Um, so we'll talk about that one. Some Apple news, apparently something happened in a couple of weeks that I'm sure that the fanboys on our show tonight will be super excited about. Microsoft news, social media news, some notable nuggets, and of course, our geeks of the week. So Dr. Fryer, is there any particular topic you'd like to start with today, or should I dive in full tilt? Uh, let's just let you jump right in. I'm a little late to getting my links in. So Okay, sounds good. Well, first and foremost, um, I would like to uh, wish Google a happy 25th birthday. And August 2023 represents the 25th birthday of Google. Um, the search engine, which was a Stanford graduate project originally called Backrub, um, has been around for 25 years now. And um, you know, making our joke earlier about the old guys talking about the old days of ed tech. Well, Google was the old days of ed tech. And for those of you that weren't as connected to the internet in the 90s, 
there used to be a lot of search engines available. Web crawler comes to mind. Alta Vista, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Meta Crawler was a famous one because it searched many uh, search engines at once and aggregated the results. Uh, so all sorts of, of early search engines and. I had a friend of mine who um, uh, works in, in, in tech. He's now in, in tech and marketing. And um, uh, he, uh, we were talking and he said, have you heard of Google? And I said, no. He says, it's really a lot better than all the other search engines. And as it turns out, I went and I sat down and had this beautiful minimalistic interface and um, very minimalistic advertising. Uh, there used to be a lot of jokes in the late 90s that, uh, you know, the pop-up ads would kill you. Uh, the early internet, especially after it became a little more advanced with, uh, we started moving away from dial-up and towards uh, more broadband, like DSL was an early popular broadband option. And uh, the internet was dominated by, by, by advertising in a way that was annoying in a different way than it is in 2023. And oftentimes there'd be pop-up or pop under ads uh, that, you know, you would close your window and there's these 19 ad windows waiting for you to close. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think the product was, there was a camera system called X11 that was full of ads all the time. Um, and then in the early days, it wouldn't be unusual to be on a very legitimate website and get a completely inappropriate ad for, pornography, um, erectile dysfunction, drugs, I mean, the whole range of things. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, the early pioneers of internet and classrooms, including uh, Dr. Fryer and myself, you know, we, we had to teach kids not to be freaked out by that. And it's okay to end up in a dark alley of the internet. When you notice you're there, you just slowly back away and close the window, right? No need to panic, no need to freak out, freshmen in high school, you know, you, that, that's the way you have to do it. And the internet today is arguably way safer or you could argue way worse depending on how you, you want to look at it. But the early internet was, was, was certainly much more wild west. And Google was the first attempt really, uh, our first successful attempt to try a more minimalistic approach. Um, there a logarithm um, that was based on um, uh, the inner structure of links and what linked to each other. And once something had established authority, it could provide other websites' authority by linking to it. It's a very interesting and complex math problem. Um, and we still don't know today what the Google formula is. They keep that a pretty close-knit secret, and it apparently is adapting and evolving all the time. But Google is 25 years old. And obviously now it's more than a search engine. It's a whole suite of tools and you know, also a pioneer in, in artificial intelligence. The fast story that, that reminds me of, <clears throat> I was teaching at Rush Elementary School. It was probably maybe 1999, 98, and I had not heard of Google. And a friend of mine from college, Tim Kane, who was uh, actually the reason I got on the debate team a couple years ahead of me, uh, I had sent an email or something and talked about this Google thing. I was um, teaching in the elementary school in a Windows 95 lab. I had uh, kids come in third, what, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, half day, and then I worked with teachers and discovered Google and realized, oh my gosh, it's a new world. So um, that was a, <laughs> a pretty big deal. So kind of, kind of wild. Wow, 25 years. And that's almost, yeah, 25 years of ed tech. So we're old guys here. 
Yeah, we are absolutely old guys. That's that's so very true. And you know, Google's not been without controversy, but it would be very difficult uh, to make any sort of claim that um, um, that Google hasn't had a shocking and extraordinary impact on humanity. Um, and you could say for better or for worse, if you wish. But I do think that that uh, certainly notable that we need to kind of keep an eye on um, you know how things have played out. So. Okay, um, I have a couple other kind of Google AI-related articles I'd love to talk about. Um, first of all, is a great article from the Washington Post from August uh, 29th, and uh, Google's working on a, a method or mechanism. I, and by the way, this is a gift link. I'm a, a Washington Post subscriber. So um, it, it, it's working on a, a technique to help uh, divide up when... Um, uh, an image that's been generated by AI and shared that there would be some sort of watermark um, that exists in the file. And right now, the, the tool is called Synth ID, S Y N T H ID, Synth ID, that they think could be part of the solution. And so essentially, what happens is that there's a digital watermark directly on the image that can't be seen by the human eye, but it's picked up by a computer that's been trained to read it. According from the article, Google says its new watermarking tech is resistant to tampering, making an easy step towards policing the fake of, or the spread of fake images and slowing the dissemination of disinformation. And, you know, we've already seen um, uh, um, uh, a lot of impact on the 2024 election by generative AI images um, on both sides of, of the aisle, I might add. So um, it's certainly um, uh, uh, something important uh, I, I'm also uh, looking at a quote, a quote from Representative uh, Yvette Clark from New York, who says that, um, that clearly the genie's out of the bottle, but we just haven't seen it maximized in terms of weaponization. And I think that's a fair characterization of where we're at right now. I think the wonder of the tools um, oftentimes covers up what you know, perceived abuse or disinformation is generated by it. But um, I think this is a good step to go in the right direction that, you know, um, uh, uh, we need to be very thoughtful about when we're using generative AI. And, um, uh, and I've now spoken a dozen times or so in the last couple of months on this, and I talk to people about how I always cite an image with, with AI, that I make sure that, that I say it's a, it's a generated image. Um, but you know, the bottom line is that uh, that matters, but probably not as much if someone who would never cite that is using it for disinformation being able to track that, I think would be pretty important. Absolutely. Okay, other Google news that is of interest. Can um, I ask you one question about that article? Is that yeah. the same one Adobe's doing? Because a few weeks ago, I think we had talked about an initiative that was to try to do this, have some watermarking. Are they, is Google collaborating with Adobe and others or are they going solo on this particular one? Do you know? Not that I don't know the answer to that. I don't think the article speaks to that either. Yeah, the word Adobe is not in there, so <laughs> same um, thing. Um, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, but that would be important because if we could come up with a de facto standard that four or five of the big players adopt, that makes it a lot easier to say this is the standard in that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's great. 
Um, another um, uh, uh, interesting uh, development this week, um, this is from a, a, a YouTube channel called Flipped Classroom, and uh, the Flipped Classroom guy um, is uh, uh, showing off the new AI image generation tool in Google Slides, and it reminds me a lot of, um, um, of uh, Canva's uh, strategy, which is just to have it as part of the tool set. Um, but now you can simply go to um, uh, um, uh, Google Slides, and I think you need to be in the, like, opted into the beta, maybe. And I don't think it's available in education yet. But if you go to insert image and then help me visualize, that's actually a shorthand for saying generated image from scratch. And so um, I would describe it as maybe six months behind mid-journey in regards to its capability, um, but it's pretty good, um, especially if you're doing a simple picture, like I want a picture um, of a jellyfish. If you put that in to help me visualize, it will create the image. Um, it will give you a couple of options to work on. Um, it does apologize because it takes up to 20 seconds, and I did laugh at that because, uh, you know, uh, anyone who is mad because it takes 20 seconds to conjure an image from scratch, um, should probably uh, 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 mitigate their um, their expectations. But now I just you know picked up eight images of a jellyfish and enabled to move it around um, a Google slide. And very powerful tool. Um, it it's pretty good quality. Um, right now it is, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, I would say, um, probably better in the minds of creative kids, right? Like as an adult, it wasn't giving me necessarily what I was looking for because I had very specific ideas in mind, but you know, understanding that the kids are oftentimes much better divergent thinkers, I think in the hands of kids, it'll be pretty darn amazing. And what is remarkable about this, I'm, I'm uh, generating, what did I say? Mountain scene with dragons flying over an active volcano. Um, it's just so doggone easy to do. And if you've ever played with Midjourney, it is amazing. Um, but you're you're uh, typing that into a chat interface, and it's kind of hard to find, and it just is not super user friendly. It it can generate some really amazing results. But I am part of uh, an AI beta for Google, and so. There it is. Help me visualize. That is yeah. amazing. Uh, any news that you've heard in terms of a rollout to education? I've not, although I was going to, that's actually on my, my research list because I want to find out more about that in part because I am super interested in finding out when it's available there. I imagine that part of the fear isn't necessarily the schools aren't ready for it yet, although you know schools are not ready for it yet. But the privacy and data concerns, um, I know having listened to a couple of, of tech directors, especially those that are the, you know, um, uh, uh, do everything that, that plugs, uh, plugs into power people um, in, in tiny school districts are very hesitant about this just because of the extraordinary data privacy rules that apply to students now that didn't exist even five years ago. Um, but I'm assuming soon. And I do have a tool a little bit later this hour, Wes, that I'm going to show you that makes Midjourney look silly. Oh, so, yeah. So I have oh, a, I, I will okay. have a good preview for you of that. Okay. Well, I have a article that I just heard about today on Hard Fork. <clears throat> We've now mentioned Hard Fork multiple times on the podcast. It's on uh, both Jason and my 
regular list of podcasts to listen to. And <clears throat> frequent listeners of the show may uh, remember the name Greg Rakowski. It's been several months ago, but we talked about him because he is a fairly amazing, um, uh, what would we say? It's, uh, you know, sort of like Dungeons and Dragons. It's, um, I'm trying to say sci-fi. Um, whatever you call, you know, fantasy. There you go. Um, yeah. so, so like when it comes to, you know, dragons and wizards and uh, all kinds of things like that. So <clears throat> the articles from Futurism on August 2nd, I think it was in the latest hard fork. Maybe it was the week before, but the the headline is guy puts artist back into AI system after he begs to be removed. So one of the things that was happening in the early days, this was only a few months ago of generative AI with tools like Midjourney, is that when you wanted to have um, a pretty amazing image um, and you wanted it to, you know, have this really distinctive um, fantasy look. Greg Rakowski is a, is a phenomenal artist and all of his works on the internet had been ingested into these tools. And so Stable Diffusion, which is a, a, an open source AI tool, and it's been lagging behind ChatGPT and MidJourney and things like that, but he had begged the developers to go ahead and remove him and remove his works from the training data. And they did that. But it's an open source tool. And what does that mean? Well, a lot of things, but among others, basically anybody can create their own fork of the project. And so some people went ahead and created a fork that put him back in there. And so um, this is, uh, I guess, maybe a commentary on the effectiveness of some of the lawsuits and some of the hand-wringing that we hear with creatives who are trying to force companies to pay them to, you know, be included or say, Hey, I need to be able to opt out. And, um, you know, open source tools are not going to be able to be controlled in the same way that a proprietary tool could. So had you heard that on, on hard fork or run into that? No, I've not heard that yet. Um, and that sounds like a fascinating story in, in, but I'm also keep thinking about, you know, a lot of the major open source, or I'm sorry, a lot of the major LLMs are open source, right? And also there's no, there in a lot of cases, there's really nothing to sue there. You can sue, but, um, you know, and, and exactly what you suggest, Wes, that the model itself, um, you know, could be compelled to take out this, this, or that. Um, and I would imagine a lot of open source advocates would also say, yeah, get the copyright stuff out of there. Uh, we don't want it anyways, but in the end, um, you know, it, 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 it's available, right? You can just download it yourself and, and, um, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be illegal for you to possess that. And this is really fascinating because it, it didn't have to be this way. The founder of, of stability AI that's behind stable diffusion, um, apparently a, a very, very wealthy hedge fund, uh, manager. And my understanding is that this particular person, took a lot of umbrage over companies like Microsoft or OpenAI or, or you name it, or governments controlling such a powerful technology. And so that's why his company, Stable Diffusion, chose to open source their tools. Now, AI has been compared by some very smart people to nuclear weapons in terms of its power. And there was a large petition we talked about a few weeks ago on the show that was circulated where basically everyone just said, this needs to be treated like 
very powerful and potentially dystopian technologies like nuclear weapons. And a lot of people signed that. And so this dynamic of, you know, wealthy individuals and organizations acting to open source these kinds of tools, I think probably portends a lot of negative results because I'm not saying, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot, there's a large lack of faith in institutions or organizations, but the ability for nation states or any kind of, of uh, governing bodies or standards bodies to be able to regulate AI is really, really small when open source is in the mix and it's not um, just a proprietary thing or something that nation states are, are controlling. And so I think that given the potential consequences and negative consequences of unregulated AI, I think this this is this is fairly bad. But as the Futurism article says, it's out. The Pandora's box is open. It, it's it's yeah. out. And I don't. I've not read anything or heard anything that makes it sound like anybody can put that back in the box. Yeah. And the other thing too. I mean, I think part of the demand that we slow down on AI research was that things like this were going to happen. And if the pace is too quick, it's, it, it's going to be difficult for us to do mid-course corrections. But I also think, too, that because of the frenzy around it, I just don't think it's really even possible for us to uh, to slow it down. I mean, there could be thoughtful companies that do it right, and maybe you continue to learn from the lessons of, of mistakes that are made. I keep thinking about Anthropic. Claude, Claude AI now is my primary tool. It is amazing. I keep finding new things to do with it. Um, I've been putting meeting minutes in it for meetings that I can't attend, it, like public meetings I can't attend or watch. And I have a, um, a, a, a text expansion snippet that says, um, you know, talks about what my job is and what I do. Please summarize this article or the, these uh, meeting minutes for me, pointing out the five or 10 things you think I should take from it. I've done that probably 25 times in the last two weeks. Wow. And four times there were things that I would have skipped right over because it's 200 pages, reports and minutes that I was able to then hone in on something important. And that is an absolutely incredible example of professional profession changing use of AI right yep. now. Yep. I'm reminded of, uh, and I blogged about this. There was a conference here at the start of, of August, um, several different conferences were about AI. And I think I put a post up, it was called Stephen Wolfram on computational thinking. Um, and Stephen Wolfram, founder of Wolfram Alpha and uh, just an incredible mind. He talked about how one of the things that he does is he regularly has all the new, you know, AI and machine learning articles. He has the abstracts summarized and put into more clear language because even though he's a scientist and he's incredibly smart, like abstracts are not always written in ways that you can readily scan them and ingest them. And so that's one of the ways that he is staying on top of his field. So that is, that is really, I think, phenomenal. And what, is, what, what could that mean for governance, right? When you think about, think about a particular nonprofit that you might be involved with um, and its interest in the community, Think about being able to set up automated workflows so that the open minutes, or it doesn't even need to be this, if it's on YouTube, <clears throat> the transcripts of the meeting 
can be ingested into the AI model and, hey, we are the, I don't know, the, 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 the Veterans Association of Central North Carolina or, um, you know, the, the, the solar energy enthusiasts or whatever. But anytime something like that is, I think that could have some pretty exciting implications for, for governance in terms of, like you said, drawing your attention to things that you might have not had any idea they were, they were discussed or highlighted. Yeah, that's totally. That's, that's awesome. And you know, and, and I was using this tool this past spring too. Uh, this was an early tool, but there, I think I talked about um, on this, the podcast. There's a, a tool called Glisp, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, let me see, make sure I got the name right. Glass, G L A S P, and um, Glass. Uh, they call it a social web highlighter and YouTube summary, but it basically adds a button to YouTube that you click on it and it takes the full carbon or it takes the full transcript from the closed captioning, opens it up in a new window with chat GPT and says, summarize this in five points or less. And, um, and it always does a really, really good job. Um, and even when it was, I pay for chat GPT pro. So I have 4.0, 3.5 is what it, it, it defaulted to because that's what, what always happens in a new window with chat GPT. And even with 3.5, it was great. But when I was looking through YouTube videos this past spring to use in a class I was teaching at the U, and I, I, I didn't want to put any time into watching a video unless I knew it was something that was worth me watching, right? So there's, you know, nine videos on, on this topic. And I want to, before I, you know, as I'm vetting them, I don't want to have to watch nine videos. So I would wait for something that looks like it was in the realm of what I was looking for and then spend my time in on that. And the time savings process here is extraordinary. Now, did that break as a result of ChatGPT's change in the number, the amount of text it can ingest? Because I, I think I had used it, but then it, it wasn't working. And so like, even for our show, I'll use YouTube transcript.com or something like that which grabs the entire transcript. I throw it into a Google doc. I make it a PDF. I throw it into Claude and then it's able to summarize the whole thing because I had used some of these tools that would like break things into five pieces and whatever. And it was just a little bit cumbersome. So I haven't used glass in a few months. Well, um, yes, broken um, uh, in that, you know, for longer videos, it clearly, you know, kind of caps out there, but I had no idea that YouTube transcript existed. So thank you, Dr. Fryer, for yet another wonderful uh, tool for my toolbox. There you go. Well, and in the, you're welcome, in the heart, in the spirit of AI uh, attribution, um, what I include in each of our EdTech Situation Room uh, podcast descriptions at the end, um, this is the one we've I've used the last couple of times, AI disclosure, an initial draft of this episode summary was generated using youtubetranscript.com and Claude AI, as well as options for our show title. Because that's, that's the other part of the prompt that I, I'll use is uh, come up with 10 very clever three-word options, you know, based on the summary that you've written in this transcript. And I've, I've gone with some before and I've, you know, I'm not always going with them, but yeah, for as an assistant for the creative process, wow. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, this it just keeps getting more um, freaking interesting. So, uh, so we'll go from there. Um, I want to point out a couple other quick Google things, and then we'll move on to the many other um, uh, articles we have for this week. Um, this one is uh, from Chrome Unboxed on April 25th. They're reporting about 
Uh, Google's Help Me Write AI is coming to Chromebooks system-wide. And the article is really interesting because it has a number of functionalities that are in beta and alpha right now that essentially allow Google Bard-like services to appear anywhere you can type. So in other words, it's it's not just a bot anymore. If you've got anything from, well, anywhere you could enter text in, you can essentially right-click and Google will pop up a dialogue to help you write whatever's in there. So whether you have AI tools or not, or you're using an AI-based tool or not, as long as it's typable, then the, the tool set is there. It also will have a, a bubble you can bring up to have more of a chatbot-like experience, but they're really integrating it at the core of, um, of, of the service. So, um, you know, and I'm sure that at some point this will be a play for Apple and a play for Microsoft as well. I think it's interesting that Google's first market on this um, from the, you know, integrated from the ground up anywhere you type can be AI generated. But um, first of all, you know, uh, Chromebooks are just, just, just fine, right? They're a good, powerful platform. Never, unless you are stuck with a really slow one, never assume that a Chromebook is not going to get the job done because it probably will. But that integration from the ground up is, is super fascinating to me. Boy, are we ever going to need professional development around the question of helping students write with AI. Yep. Because here it is, and it's just going to be right there, nothing more than a secondary right-click on the Chromebook. That is, that is really, that's phenomenal. Okay. Um, hmm. You want to do some more Google, or are we ready to jump to another topic? Uh, let me see what articles we have there. Let's move on to something else. Okay. So I put this under um, – well, I'll do a notable, notable nugget, and then I've got a, a couple social media ones. Um, the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark finally, <coughs> finally gives <coughs> device makers a reason to spend big on security. This is from TechCrunch on August 23rd. Um, in addition to enjoying the um, Hard Fork podcast, TechWise, I'm still listening to the Twit This Week in Tech every once in a while. And I even started listening to Security Now, which I haven't listened to for a while. And I think I got this on, I know I got it on one of those. I, I think I might have gotten it on Twit. Um, one of the big issues when it comes to security, oh gosh, no, I, this, it was a different podcast. Um, is like, who do you trust? And is the is the firmware going to be updated? Um, according to the article, it says last year, more than 110 million IoT, Internet of Things, malware attacks took place. And that was an 87% increase in the previous 12 months. What are we talking about? You know, smart devices. Uh, you've got smart light bulbs, switches, um, you know, thermostats, different things that people are putting in into their homes. And these devices are computers. They have chips in them. They have firmware in them, and they can be hacked. One of my favorite things, and I think I might, I think I'm going to do a little security unit with my. Um, I I'm teaching both a computer programming class and a web design class, which I'm loving both of those this year. But I think it, with my web design, I'll do a unit on security and talk about the hack, um, you know, that involved Minecraft and mm -hmm. when these kids figured out how to how to hack you know thousands and thousands of iot devices and, and and the main motivator was they wanted to be able to take down their uh 
their opponents who are hosting, you know, Minecraft servers. So, so anyway, how are you going to know what to trust? Well, the um, United States, the White House announced this in July. Uh, they have a U.S. cyber trust mark, and it's part of its voluntary labeling the program for smart devices. And so it's similar to what the EU has done with their Cyber Resilience Act. And so the article in TechCrunch is saying that compliance is going to be more cost effective as a result. And so this is going to be important signaling uh, for us as consumers to be able to look for devices that have this mark because there's going to be some commitments that the manufacturers are going to be making to cybersecurity. And hopefully it's going to be a quality seal that will mean something. But it's pretty new and I hadn't heard anything about that. And we talk about IoT and security and things like that from time to time. And so as I purchase new IoT devices, I'll look for the, the cyber trust mark. I don't know exactly when that's going to be on products. I know you, I think, posted a link today to a, like a JBL speaker that has both, you know, uh, Madam A as well as the, the uh, G assistant in them. Um, so it's just something to look for sort of yeah. on the con consumer side as we're looking at, at devices and thinking about security. Awesome. Okay, where to next, sir? Uh, let's do a couple social media ones. Uh, following your lead with AI, I went ahead and put this in the social media category, but this was the Washington Post, also a gift link from August 25th. <laughs> following Elon Musk's lead, big tech is surrendering to disinformation. And so this is actually really sad. Um, we have definitely covered on the show and talked before about not only, you know, replatforming of different individuals who were previously um, taken off of Twitter, um, but also just an increase in, um, you know, harassment and uh, persecution of folks on, um, on uh, Twitter. Well, unfortunately, um, Meta, uh, Facebook, you know, led by Mark Zuckerberg, um, has had mass cutoffs, gutting teams that were dedicated to promoting accurate information, um, and, and basically, you know, this is really poorly timed with the 24, 2024 primaries and election that are coming up because there is just a lot less, um, there, are, there are far fewer resources that are available now in these tech companies with you know, ever-increasing quantities of shared information. Um, the article points out that Russia and China have grown more aggressive uh, in terms of their covert influence campaigns and then generative AI, as we talk about every show, uh, has created new tools for, you know, misleading voters and creating disinformation and, and sowing confusion. And so huh, it's, uh, you know, it's not not a great thing. But I had really kind of thought that might have been limited to Twitter, but evidently, um, you know, Facebook and other big tech companies have kind of followed the lead and said, oh, it, and, and part of that, I think, is there's there can be such a pushback when it comes to some of that censorship. Um, and so, you know, if things are are political and polarizing, even if they're false, um, for instance, we had, you know, th things about voting and, and, and an example was something that would try to tell somebody the election was a different day or their their polling place was in a different location because they wanted to try to reduce the, the you know, turnout. Um, things like that, you know, have been blocked. And so, of course, there's promise that AI tools are going to be able to to fill in the gap, but but that hasn't proven to, to be the case. So anyway, that was uh, 
kind of a surprise. And then one more, this is kind of a quick one, uh, and this is local. Uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg is our large county, and we have county schools here in North Carolina. Um, uh, I forget how many hundreds of thousands of students they have. Um, Charlotte Mecklenburg County has filed a lawsuit against social media companies over the health impacts, and they've joined other um, districts and organizations doing that. So they filed against, um, and this was an article from August 25th, in WSOC TV. Um, they filed against Meta, Facebook, Google, ByteDance for TikTok, uh, Snap uh, for Snapchat, quote, saying their project products have been, quote, causing harm to students, damaging youth mental health, and burdening school districts, according to a news release on Friday. And so in terms of a tech correction with all of this, um, I don't have this article, but again, that latest Hard Fork podcast actually has a very good discussion about potentially maybe unintended consequences over some of the, the proposed legislation for, for, quote, internet safety in terms of, of proving identity. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen where all this is going to go. But, but some of that proposed legislation is, is asking social media companies basically to forecast, you know, what kinds of speech and what kinds of content might potentially harm students in the future. And if you share that, you're going to be open to, to, to lawsuits and, and have a liability. Um, uh, you're going to have li you know, liability, um, a threat of, of, of being able to be sued, I guess. So anyway, um, that was interesting that that was happening locally. Yeah, totally. Well, and I also think too that, um, and I, I have extremely mixed feelings about this, but what I've noticed over the last two years is that it's now becoming cool to say that, you know, well, we don't like phones and we don't like tech and we want techless this and we want techless that. And, and the reason why it's mixed for me is because I do think that there is a lot of research that says if you're mindlessly just letting kids you know, dicker around with devices. Um, yeah, that that is not an effective use of class time, and probably increases unsavorable or unsavory behaviors amongst our students. But you know, thoughtfully implemented and with really clear mission, um, you know, you can still, I think, do great ed tech stuff. And you know, like everything, and 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 my entire life seems to be a you know a lesson in this for myself. Like it's never. It's never one or the other, right? It's always somewhere in the middle. And, you know, let's not, you know, and I think it's particularly true in our current political climate that it's really easy to try to find a right answer and then just pound on that button to see what happens. Um, but I, I think that's a, a foolhardy game. And I don't think it serves our students well to say that, that schools are completely tech-free zones. And one of the things the Hard Work Podcast pointed out is it's not just the letter of the law and the requirements it's going to put on. It's also the chilling effect that it has on companies that have a product, a, a profit motive and, and an incentive to avoid litigation. And so, um, it, you know, it's the tech correction is is still here. And I mean, because we've got all kinds of, of consequences, as you say, to social media, but there's certainly not consensus on what to do. And in the in the effort to try to do something, um, it remains to be seen, you know, what, what kinds of big impacts that might have on, on the internet overall and things that go far beyond, you know, youth wellness and, and health and things like that. Yep. Couldn't agree more. All right. Okay. 
yeah, let's let's go ahead. Uh, big event coming up. Um, the event title is Wanderlust, uh, which I would have been accused of having much myself because I love to travel the world. And the graphic is a evolving apple that's kind of have metal tones to it with things flying off of it. Of course, what everyone loves to do is go and take a look at the invite and the image and the name and try to detect what's interesting there. But what I think is the most likely scenario is that iPhone 15 will be announced. There will be somewhere between three and four varieties of the iPhone from big to small, uh, pro to not pro. And um, other than expanding out the so-called dynamic island to all of the devices, the only other thing that will be new-ish will be USB-C connectivity, which has been all but confirmed by, by rumor links. And so we'll see. I mean, Apple surprised me before, where right? I was pretty thrown off by their, their headset earlier this year. So uh, the bottom line is, is that, that they are never not full of surprises. But I guess I'll start here, Wes. Um, assuming an iPhone 15 comes out, um, are you a candidate for this phone? I went ahead and picked up the 14, you know, a year ago after yeah. I mean, we, I, I was I was very happy with used phones for quite a while. Yeah, I will say, you know, the camera has just been absolutely phenomenal. Being able to live stream on, you know, 5G, you know, I, I thankfully haven't had to use the SOS feature when I was outside of regular cellular coverage to, you know, basically call 911 in an emergency. I wouldn't want to do that. But being able to have. Um, you know, its features. I, I don't think so, but uh, I am really excited about the USB-C connectivity because for a while, when I was back in Oklahoma, I had had, I guess, an iPad pro with USB-C and it was really nice yeah. to be able to travel and not have to, you know, just to be able to use my same USB-C charger for my laptop with my, my iPad. And so I think that's going to be that's going to be good. But of course, it's going to throw schools into some turmoil. And actually, our school, which were iPad one to one, just rolled out new iPads, I think, to uh, ninth graders this year. I think kids get a new device every three years. And these were the first USB-C devices, which sounds exciting. But when all of your chargers are lightning and when all of your you know, video adapters are lightning, then you know, you're, you're caught in this situation where you're going to have to have multiple ones available and, you know, one size isn't going to fit all. But I think the transition to USB-C is definitely where we need to go. And I think we can thank Europe for that, right? Because I think yeah. they're the ones that really pushed Apple to say, you have to do this. This is, a, this is a standard. And because Europe's getting it, I think we're getting it. If I read those tea leaves and articles correctly. Yeah. Well, and um, one of the things that's been kind of delight the last uh, six months or so is that I feel like I'm finally getting back to pre-pandemic levels of for example my travel bag right like i because i'm a nerd and kind of obsessive about stuff you know i make sure that i have a very 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 thoughtful daily carry bag and what i'm carrying my laptop in and such and of course i'm always you know maybe too concerned about um, about power but you know to your point about USB-C being so great i mean one of my strategies and the reason why i'm able to just produce this is because uh, I was they were sitting in my pocket but you know in my little daily carry bag when I have my chargers with me I cap off a USB-C cable with one of these lightning to or USB-C to lightning uh, converters so I have the opportunity to essentially you know, make that into a multi-cable and um, you know yeah I think it would be really great to get to that point too and 
I mean, I, I do agree with some folks that say that USB-C is still kind of confusing about how it's implemented and which chargers do what. But if you, for, for the nerds, right, if you're a non-nerd, you don't care about this, but I do. Um, you know, knowing what you can use, making sure you have the right cables, and knowing how much your charger's output, so you can always be kind of on top of your charging needs, remains a really cool a cool thing to do to kind of stay on top of that process. So I'd be looking forward to that too. And I will say I do have an iPhone 13 Pro right now, not the Pro Max, but the Pro. Um, and it's actually interesting because I also know for my friends that have uh, the Pro Maxes uh, in the last couple of generations, they're just a lot heavier than the Pro, um, like, like noticeably heavy. But um, I'm also on T-Mobile's uh, device exchange program. So I'm due up for a new iPhone this year from them. They'll buy back my old one, and I believe give me the phone with credits, if I remember correctly, uh, for a, a, a nominal fee. So, um, so yeah, I'll be updating for sure. And my strategy would be to go with, assuming there's, I don't like the Max because I, I almost, I'm always carrying a tablet with me, so I don't need a big phone, right? But if I could go with, um, you know, the, uh, the Pro model that's a little smaller, I think I'd be in for an update. What I'm going to have to do is take stock of the other phones in our family yeah. inventory. Um, our son is getting married in September. And uh, I think that will be the point at which we'll go ahead and take him off our family T-Mobile plan. <laughs> um, but, and, and, you know, so he'll, he'll have responsibility for his, his own phone updating. But uh, for both our daughters and my wife, um, I think the 11 Pro that our youngest has might be the oldest phone that we have. And so anyway, um, yeah, we'll need to take stock of that, but probably do the same kind of weighing of, you know, is it really going to be worth this? And you know, what's, what's Swappa doing? So, you know, yeah. the 13, the 14, these are going to be priced even better after the 15, you know, hits the market. So um, there, I think we've covered some articles about this, but people are just generally not turning over their iPhones and their smartphones as quickly as they have sometimes in the past. And of course, Apple and all smartphone manufacturers would like to keep that churn going. And so there'll be different kinds of incentives and I'm sure an amazing presentation. So we've said this before, but if nothing else, watch the introduction to the Apple event because they always you know, pull off some pretty clever videography. And I think they really define best practice in you know, a, a video, video production quality as far as yeah. what they're, what they're doing. So I, cool. I, I mentioned, I think I've watched now about half of the WWDC presentation from the summer and, and still need to go look at it because the new version of iOS will be announced as well. And there's some, there's some pretty uh, compelling things that it's going to, to have in it. Some of it's just, you know, cool stuff, but um, you know, all those features add up. So we're fanboys. Hey, why don't I, I, I want to share uh, an Air Force drone AI article and then maybe you want to talk about your amazing tool because I don't want yes, to run too far and miss out on that. Okay. So this was actually my geek of the week today for my media literacy. I have two sections of uh, middle school media literacy. And the this is an article from the New York Times from August 27th. And it's called AI brings robot wingman to aerial combat. And a number of years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with our son, I think, and the Air and Space Museum had just started their new exhibit for drones. And of course, one of the things that's interesting about this is there's so much secrecy surrounding drones and the drone programs. So um, this article talks about a drone I had not actually heard of, the pilotless XQ-58A Valkyrie. 
and it's run by AI. And as you scroll down, you'll see a, you know, photo photographs of not only the aircraft, but also a pilot who is now testing flying with this thing. And so basically there's a couple of generals that are involved and then the, the test pilot, I think his name is Ross Elder, uh, saying I'm flying off the wing of something that's making its own decisions and it's not a human brain. And so what the United in this article, they say that the, the inventory of the U.S. Air Force and full disclosure, our daughters at the Air Force Academy now, uh, I'm just uh, kind of a little more in tune and, and following, you know, some different things having to do with the Air Force since because of that. Um, the Air Force in the United States has fewer aircraft and older aircraft than we ever have since World War II. And part of what the U.S. Air Force has proposed doing and the Pentagon looks to be, you know, doing and in, in, assuming all the congressional funding is going to be in place is a lot like what sounds like Star Wars. So I actually showed a landing scene from Star Wars Phantom Menace episode one today in class and talked about drones because the vision is you're going to have human pilots with multiple fully full-sized, you know, drone aircraft, but these are going to cost something like 3 million a piece versus like what, 30 million a piece for the F-35. And so these aircraft are going to be able to go in by themselves, but they're also going to be, you know, flying with their human pilot, but they're going to be able to make their own decisions in dogfighting and in releasing ordnance and dropping bombs and shooting missiles. And the United States, if you're not following this, right, there's a huge military buildup that's happening right now. Um, and I've heard some leaders talk about 2025 being the point at which China may exceed the United States in military capabilities. And so with all of the missile defenses and everything else that China has, this is part of how the United States sees itself being able to counter that threat is not going to be with human pilots and $30 million or $35 million F-35s, but a smaller number of human pilots and F-35s and hundreds, if not thousands of these drone aircraft. So kind of mind blowing. And there's a lot to unpack there and uh, talk about. Yep. There you go. All right. What about this fascinating AI tool? Oh, Dr. Fryer. Um, so you mentioned mid journey earlier and I spent a lot of time at mid journey. It's an extraordinary tool and it's part of my standard presentation now for educators about, you know, how great, um, uh, the tool is and how uh, interesting and also a little scary the tool is. And then um, I th I'm 99% sure that Ethan Mullock from the Wharton School um, uh, is, is where I picked up this link from. But this is currently free. Um, I did not get a chance to look at the, um, the terms of service, and I can't find them now that I'm signed in. Like, I think I'd have to create a new account using the terms of service again, which seems a little problematic. But the interface is a lot like Instagram in that it's kind of a mix between a social media sharing tool and a, 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 an AI tool or an AI image tool. But it creates the most stunning images that are accurate to the prompt that I have seen in AI in general. And it can do really anything. I mean, it, like for example, if you ask Midjourney to create a sign, it's just gonna create a sign that looks like a sign, but the 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 text on there will be blah blah blah, right? It's just it looks right, but it's not actually English words, right? It's just you know uh, mimicking that. This will create English words. So for the example, um, 
Um, uh, uh, I'm looking at a prompt that says, Baby Yoda holding a sign, let us delete our images, please. Cinematic, natural light. And here is a picture of Baby Yoda holding a sign that says, let us delete our images. Um, this one, do you want negative prompting in neon typography, 3D render? And it shows what is, is, is a, a cinematic photograph of a neon sign that says, do you want negative uh, prompting? Um, this is a Mad Magazine cover with uh, former President Trump on it as Alfred ne uh, E. Newman. Um, this is a, um, uh, uh, a sticker. I'm not weird. I'm limited edition typography sticker of Weird Al Yankovic and glasses mustache detail completely renders it from top to bottom. And uh, it is by far the most powerful tool I've seen yet in generate, generating stuff with really simplistic prompts. Do you know is who the who the um, the company is behind it or anything about the, the AI model that's using? Nothing about it other than holy dog is it interesting. Well, and what another great example of how we can be the filters for each other, right? Because Ethan Mollock, you've talked about before, he was a guest on yep. Hard Fork. Um, I listened to that episode, by the way, and it was excellent. Um, his analysis, because he's really, a, especially with higher education, um, a, you know, probably one of the foremost experts on uh, AI and, and, and faculty adjustment and things like that. Let me see if I can actually share my screen because this won't help the folks who are listening to this as an audio podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and say share my screen and I'm going to try to share. Uh, huh, can I just do one thing at a time? All right. Here is the uh, Google Slides version of Mountain Scene with Dragons Flying. And there were, you know, four different ones and... Um, okay, that's that's okay. There were there were a couple options there. Um, now I really haven't done a lot of presenting here with. Screen yeah, I would describe that as generally accurate, recognizable, but still a little on kind of the art side. Yeah, yeah, it looks a little bit more iconish. Um, and so, anyway, here's the same exact same prompt in in ideogram. But again, I would the thing I would I would say the same thing about both tools compared to Midjourney and what you had to do in Discord in order to get that to yeah. work and just how cumbersome it was. I mean, I've wanted to do actually like a uh, an EdTech playdate, which we've done before with different tools, where you just kind of get together and have some people who know a few things about some tools, but play with them and people share and learn together. And I still think that would be great. But part of my hesitation of doing this with like our art teachers and stuff is. I didn't play with Midjourney long enough to feel extremely fluent and conversant with the tool. But these tools are, you know, point and click. Have you done iteration with them to can you refine them in the same way that you can with Midjourney to say, okay, I want you to use that one and and play with it some more, or is it uh, kind of take it or leave it? For the... Well, now that you say that, though, hold on, I'm going to say. Oh, there is a re there is a remix. There's a remix. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to just try out. Uh, yeah. Montana is the best state ever. See what that provides me. And by the way, the text rendering here is just unbelievable. And by the way, I then took one of these images today. I... 
upscaled it uh, using the upscale AI. I then sent it off to a someone online that that will draw a vector out of it, and now I have a vector logo for something like, and it's 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 pretty impressive stuff. So. Um, okay, so I have a mountain. I have a mountain scene that actually looks very Montana-ish. Um, I'm clicking remix, and uh, so yeah, so we can take that image, and then you can ask it to, you know, to modify it in some way. Yeah, that that that's amazing. To iterate, yeah, that that really is. And then there's as you generate, there are, there are these, you know, all these different style choices that you can have, you know, that are menu driven. So. I think this is just phenomenal. I mean, okay, but I do have this question. And if you don't have this, maybe we can reach out to others. What are the implications for students who are under 13? I'm teaching middle schoolers oh, and yeah. I do have some 13 year olds, but you know, our, we're using Padlet and it's got a, I can't draw option and it's, it's licensed and, and, and we can have tools that kids can use with permission, but this is kind of a hazy part of, of schools and ed tech. And I think, I think what schools are supposed to do if you are using something outside of the approved, you know, Google suite is I think that you're supposed to have some individual permission or you're supposed to put those tools in the sign off that parents are saying, yes, they, they can do this. But I, you know, I don't, I don't think that that is followed a lot. And I think that has something to do with, with Google itself and some of the changes that they made in the admin console where now everybody's age is noted and there's some tools that just don't work at school because the developers didn't put the hooks in to say, oh, yes, we got to check, you know, if if kids what what kids ages are and things like that. So anyway, yeah. if anybody out there listening has done some work, I'm going to reach out to Eric Kurtz. He is presenting prolifically all over the country about AI and education. And so I'm going to uh, he would be a really good person to ask about that. So we'll see. We'll uh, report back. Okay. Well, Wes, I think, uh, well, by the way, um, I, <laughs> um, I pay for MidJourney, I pay for ChatGPT, and now in the last 48 hours, I'm only using Claude, I'm only, only using um, Ideogram or whatever you pronounce this. So, but yeah, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So, Okay. Well, Dr. All Fryer, right. we seem to be now past the top of the hour, so unless there's anything we need to cover today... Uh, shall we geek of the week quickly? Although Let's that was do it. Uh, Dr. Fryer, go ahead. Okay. So um, this was actually my first video that I upscaled the uh, Google slide generated thumbnail using the upscale tool that Jason has shared. But I am in the midst of my family oral history project with my middle schoolers. Just love this. Um, and finally, and it's taken me a while to do this. Um, I've been such a fan of the iOS app, Voice Record Pro, which is free and all this, but kids have to download it. Well, guess what? Uh, voice Memos comes free on every iPad, and my kids don't have to install anything. It's right there, and it works great. And so I'm just having my kids use Voice Memos, share it to, to drive, um, and then today they were just actually downloading it because we're, we're using a laptop you know, in our room as well. And, and sort of skipping some of the sharing complexities that can that can happen there and just directly putting that on Padlet and then sharing a link. But yay for uh, sharing voice memos. And that's a tutorial link and you can get in the description of that. Or I also have the other link to my full lesson and I'm going to be updating that in, um, well, I would say the next week. But anyway, love that unit, love that lesson. And, you know, changing tools is part of what we oftentimes need to do for different reasons and 
I'm glad to have done that because it's making it even faster and easier for my kids to not even have to worry about getting a new app to be able to do their classmate and then ultimately their family interview. How about you? Well, I want to share one of the reasons why I think there may be other stuff uh, at the Apple event is because there's been a lot of sales on Apple laptops in the last two weeks at third-party sellers. But I wanted to highlight that the baseline MacBook Air M1 is on sale at Amazon right now for $750. It's 25% off. Um, and I will tell you, because this is my this very laptop is my daily driver. If you are a Mac person and you're still sitting around with a you know, 2016 MacBook Air or something, this is a really inexpensive way to get into the universe. Um, it, it only has 8 gigs of RAM, but it honestly doesn't matter because you notice the 16 gigs of RAM on those machines. But I never feel like I'm limited with 8 um, on, on the device. And I think these devices are 6, 8-year purchases easily. Um, especially with Apple uh, Silicon chips. So currently on Amazon, uh, 25% off, $750, your choice of colors, pretty hard to beat. Totally true. I'm on an M1 8 gig RAM machine right now, super fast. It's, that's the, the machine that I had at my previous school and I just couldn't be happier. I don't know that I need any more speed. No, um, yeah, I certainly don't either. Yep. Okay, Dr. Fryer, where can people find you on the interwebs? They can go to westfriar.com slash after and you'll have more links than you even want to click on. How about you? Well, I'm still kind of on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, although I'm thinking about maybe trying to be more on Mastodon, who knows, especially since, you know, they're encouraging disinformation now on Twitter. Um, but hey, this isn't complaints about Twitter. It's the Antic Situation Room. We're a once a week podcast on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. If you can't join us live, and I wish you would, Please download our podcast anywhere, find our podcast or aggregated, or go to edtechsr.com to download a tiny MP3, edtechsr.com slash links to check out all of our information. And otherwise, um, uh, we're available uh, throughout the internets wide. Stay safe, stay savvy. We hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night.